you're 21 years sober and you're told that you have stage three kidney cancer and you may not make it, a lot of things flash through your mind. And I can tell you the saving grace was the things that I learned all the years prior to that and the things that I went through. I think adversity and I try to show clients by my example that you go through adversity and that pain has purpose. And the pain that you're going through one day will help another human being. Yo, what's going on, guys? Welcome to a podcast. Not only is this a podcast, but it's our journey. A journey that we hope you want to ride out with us as we intend to educate you guys, inspire, talk about past and current experiences, and to make one think to stop judging others. Most importantly, stop judging yourself based on others' views and perceptions. With that said, you'll be hearing from me, myself, Austin Kirshner, but along with our journey, on this podcast will be my mother, Kathy Kirshner, and my brother, Dylan Kirshner. With that said, welcome to Silencing of Stigma. We're going back to the roots. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another podcast of Silencing of Stigma. We're actually on the road for this one, so this is interesting. This is our first time being on the road. Oh, really? We typically do it either in my garage, in the kitchen... Um, but this is actually the first time we packed it up and, oh, yeah. and came somewhere. So, cool. yeah, so you're our first guinea pig with packing our stuff up and come. We've done Zoom before because of yeah. COVID. We've done Zoom and had people on from New York, um, California, Arizona, but we've never actually picked up and came. So really? we didn't know what to expect here. It's beautiful Great. here. So we're at the ranch, everybody. Um, those that know what the ranch is. Um, you'll know what we're talking about. And those that don't, Mike is with us today. He's going to explain, introduce himself and explain a little bit and whatever we talk about. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Mike and I'm definitely an alcoholic. Um, first, I want to say thank you to Not Want More. I have a lot of respect for the organization, um, for Alyssa and the people that run that place. Um, I've had the opportunity to do things with them over the years. And, um, for me, it's all about saving lives and changing people and helping others. And, um, if you can save one life through this journey, um, it's a win. So it's an honor to be able to give a little bit of my story and tell you what we do at the ranch. And um, I'm just going to start off and tell you a little bit about um, myself. Um, I got sober April 4th of 1995. So I'll be sober 27 years and a couple more weeks. Um, I walked out of a treatment center in 1995 after being homeless and living on the streets of downtown Pittsburgh. Um, with no hope, no money, no family, no job, and I really didn't want to be living, to tell you the truth. Um, I didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, and a series of events occurred that I ended up having an esophageal hemorrhage, and I uh, was in a coma for 28 days in a hospital. And they sent me to a treatment center called Coforge Forge up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and uh, sent me to a sober living house in York, Pennsylvania. And um, I got to tell you, I didn't want to do any of those things. Um, but I did it because I had nowhere else to go. And in that process, um, I come to find out what was wrong with me. And um, I had been in and out of psych wards in my 20s. I, have, I also suffer from uh, mental illness. I was diagnosed with bipolar at the last treatment center, which is one of the reasons I couldn't stay sober because I would always medicate myself. So just a little bit about me. Um, I'm Irish Catholic, so we drink. Um, my family was kind of nuts. My father was not a nice man. Um, he beat me, beat my mom, and one day I couldn't take it any longer, so me and him fought and I drank. And uh, 
I don't know if my life would be the way it is today if I never took that first drink, but I'm glad I took that first drink. Um, I don't know that I ever would have found the peace and serenity in the life that I have today without going through the pain and suffering of addiction. And, um, and that may sound strange to some people, but uh, for me, going through this process has taught me so much. And probably the most important thing it's taught me is um, life is precious. And for so long, I felt entitled. And I was kind of selfish and self-centered and arrogant, which is really the center of the illness. So, you know, I take my first drink of 15, and, um, and I'm off and running. And I, I get in some DUIs, and I go to jail. And at 24 years old, I inherit a, a bunch of money. And um, my addiction's just starting to kick off. I'm not a daily drinker. I don't understand alcoholism yet, um, but I'm starting to get in trouble. My grandfather passes, and um, I walk out of an attorney's office with almost $4 million. And being a good alcoholic, not knowing what to do, as I was walking through the streets, I saw a bar for sale. So I thought it would be a good idea to buy a bar. So at 24 years old, I bought a bar in downtown Pittsburgh, and it was actually a strip club. And in the process, I married four strippers. Um, not all at the same time. Many people ask that question. <laughs> uh, none of them were long-lasting relationships, but we had fun. Unfortunately, out of that last marriage came a daughter. Um, I have a daughter who's 36, and um, I have two grandchildren. And, um, and my, daughter, uh, my daughter wants nothing to do with me, um, and I've never met my grandchildren sober. And, um, and that's my fault. And I've done everything I could to bring her back into my life and all the things that men that came before me suggested to do. And, and for some reason, my daughter still chooses to keep me out because of the hurt I caused her. And um, I always provided financially for my family. I was just never there emotionally. I could not ever be there emotionally for anyone in my life. I didn't know how to show up. I just knew how to make money. And um, as a result of that, um, I sit here almost 27 years sober and I've never kissed my daughter and I've ever met my grandchildren and that hurts. And um, and it's one of the driving factors of my life. And then my prayer is that one day, and when I do pass, and hopefully sober, that someone gets to tell my daughter that your dad was a good man, and he died sober, and he loved you very much. And um, if I get that, then, then I win. And um, there's a lot of casualties along the way in, in addiction. And um, if you're anything like me, you lose people. Um, you lose people that you love, and you act like you don't love them until you get sober, and all of a sudden you realize you need them in your life. And, um, but they don't come back because you hurt them too much. And, um, and you, you're faced with a decision, especially when you come into treatment, you know. Are, are you going to do it for them or are you going to do it for you? And my first two treatment centers, I did it for them. And it didn't work. Um, and I really didn't want to be clean. Um, I always thought I could drink successfully and use successfully. You know, my drug of choice was alcohol, heroin, and pills. And um, for a very long time, I could maintain that, you know. So... Um, you know, I have that daughter, and I, I start to um, become a daily drinker. I start to be, experience consequences, but I have a lot of money, so I get out of them. And eventually, it spirals out, and I come home, and they're gone. And um, I had a little problem with the IRS. I got caught selling drugs to an FBI agent, and um, so I was wanted by the FBI and the IRS. So... Long story short, I ended up living in my car, and eventually I became homeless, and I lived on the streets of Pittsburgh for two years. And um, I got to tell you, when I was on the streets, I, I was, I was okay with that, you know. Um, I never thought it would happen, 
Like I, I can remember sitting in front of the bar that I owned panhandling to people that used to come into my bar and they would walk on the other side of the street and not take a look at me. It just broke my heart. And I remember I had hair down to my butt and I didn't look very well and I had scabs all over me. And um, I'd be sitting at Point State Park in downtown Pittsburgh and I would be just staring at the people going, you know, if you just give me one more chance, God. You know, if you give me one more chance, man, that's what I want. All I ever want, and I think most addicts and alcoholics want, we want love. But we don't have the capacity, at least I didn't, to receive the love that I was given. And so for a guy like me, I block my heart away from people that can hurt me because most of my life people left me. And, um, and I've come to realize now that that was my fault. Um, I wouldn't allow them into a place that I protected for so long because I didn't understand the nature of addiction. And so I ended up on the streets and... Um, I do what people on the streets do, and I thought I would never do, because you're talking to a guy that never had to ask how much it cost. And now I'm trying to buy quarters and dimes so I can get a bottle not to get sick at night. And um, I was definitely, by that time, way over the top. I was a maintenance drinker. I'd have it in me 24-7, every day, every day of the week, every time. No matter when I was awake, I had to have alcohol or something in me or I would get sick. Um, it was really no longer about getting drunk. It was more about just staying, not getting sick. And um, Eventually, I used to walk up to the 7th Street Bridge in downtown Pittsburgh every night my last month or so on the street, and I'd stand up on the railing with a bottle in my hand and jump. I just wanted to jump so bad, and um, something just kept saying no, and I'd get back down off the bridge, and I'd walk back to where I was living in the woods, and I'd do it again the next night, and I'd get up on that bridge, and I'd say, man, I got to go. It's over. I can't take it no more. And that little voice would just say, get back off there. And finally, the last night I went to that bridge, um, before I got on it, I, had, I coughed. And I ruptured my esophagus, and I bled out. And an ambulance just happened to be coming by, which I know now today and is more of, of a spiritual thing in my life and the way God showed up to get me to a place that I needed to. And, um, so I spent the next 28 days in a coma. And um, when I woke up out of the coma, um, I asked the nurse where I was because I had no clue what had happened to me, and she told me what happened to me. And I said, well, where am I right now? And she told me, and I said, uh, well, who are those people over there? And she said, they're from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I would prefer they not be in my room. And she said, they're not leaving. And I said, well, I don't want to see happy people. I don't want to hear about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to talk about the steps. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about being sober. I would much rather they get out of my room. And they left. And um, I think it was the first time I cried in a long time because I, I knew they were there to help me. And so that night, for the first time, I prayed. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to be, and I have no clue where life is, and um, I'm pretty broken. And um, if there's anything there, just help me. And so the next day they came back, and um, the woman came in my room, and uh, we talked. And she started reading some things that out of that big book and out of recovery and uh, the light came on and I remember asking her why do you do this and she said listen son when you can answer that question you won't have to ask it but I can tell you one thing I don't do it for you I do it for me because 15 years ago I laid in that same bed and I was a mother and a daughter and a sister and an aunt and I became a prostitute and I lived on the streets of Pittsburgh and for the first time in my life someone talked my language and she got me. And um, for the rest of my stay in that hospital, every day from 12 to 1 o'clock, these people would come in my room and take a meeting to me.
And um, they would take me to a meeting in the hospital I was in was Mill Creek Community Hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania. And they had a meeting in that hospital every night at 7 o'clock, and they would wheel me down. They got permission from the doctor because I wasn't doing really well. And the only thing I remember is at the end of the meeting, there had to be 50 or 60 people there, and they pushed me in the middle with a nurse and a gurney, and they said a prayer. And they pushed me back up to my room, and it took two hours for all those people to leave my room. And when I woke up the next day, I had more flowers in my room than any florist. And I remember asking the nurse, where'd all those flowers and stuff come from? She said, it came from people from Alcoholics Anonymous, son, they love you. And I said, why would people from Alcoholics Anonymous love a loser like me? And she said, son, one day you'll understand why they do what they do, and hopefully you do what they do one day. Because if you do what they do one day, you'll save your life and maybe others. Right now, you don't understand any of that, and it doesn't make sense to you, and I get that. But let them love you back to life. Just let them love you. And I said, okay, I will. And um, so right when I was getting ready to discharge, I thought it would be a good idea to go back to Pittsburgh and not treatment. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so the woman came walking into my room, and the doctor was in there getting ready to discharge me, and they was going to send a van, or I was going to be released back out. And I said, I'll do whatever she says. And I didn't think she'd say go to treatment but she did uh and I went to treatment and I spent 41 days in the treatment center and um I was not a great client um I was very angry I was very confused more importantly I was afraid I was scared out of my mind and about two weeks in I had a therapist that asked me a question and um it, it hit home and but we don't do it much in treatment today but what happened to me was uh she told me to lay on the floor and cross my arms and I thought that was kind of strange, but she told me if I didn't do it, she was going to kick me out. So I did it. And um, she said, now close your eyes, and when I tell you to open them up, tell me who you see. And I said, okay. And um, I closed my eyes, and she said, open up. She said, who's at your funeral? And I said, nobody. I said, there's nobody here, and there shouldn't be anybody here. She said, tell me what your eulogy would be. And I said, he died a drunk. He died a loser. And she said, to get off the floor. And I said, okay, what do we do now? And she said, change the eulogy. You, from this day on until the rest of your life, your job is to change the eulogy and become the man that you want to be and live by morals, values, integrity, and honesty. And I'm going to teach you how to do that, son. And you're not going to bite with me. You're not going to debate me. You're going to do everything I tell you to do. I'm going to kick you out of here. Do you understand that, sir? And I said, yes, ma'am, I do. I said, I'll do whatever you ask me to do because I can't take the pain. And I did everything that woman asked me to do. And um, I came to a recovery house in York, Pennsylvania. And I started to um, understand what addiction and recovery and what it was like to be free from addiction. And I got a sponsor and I went to meetings and I worked 12 steps and I do it today. After 27 years of sobriety, I go to four meetings a week. I sponsor men, I have a sponsor. I couldn't imagine life without it um, because I need somebody in my life that's not emotionally attached to tell me the truth. Because every once in a while I get a bright idea that I should go back and visit my daughter and I know that's not right. That's just human. And I know if I did that it would be selfish and I would hurt her more than anything so I stay away from her. Um, probably one of the toughest things I've ever gone through. And so I came out and I, I rebuilt my life and I, uh, I worked at a transit company in, in York for 21 years. I started washing buses. And eventually I worked myself up to operations manager in charge of 140 people after three years sober. 
And I did it all by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous and the men and women that came before me and helped me. And after 21 years of service, we parted ways, and I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. And I remember calling up the men that I supported me and, and the women in the rooms, and I'm like, I don't know what I should do. Like, we didn't leave on great terms. Um, there was a lot of management changes going on, and I got bounced out because of my salary, pretty much. But, um, and I called up my sponsor, and I said, hey, you know, 52 years old, what do you think I should do for a living? He goes, you know. I said, well, I have a CDL. I could go drive a truck, make a lot of money. He goes, no, that's not it. I said, well, I have a CDL. I could go work anywhere. I could work in warehouses, dispatching. That ain't it. He said, where do you think God wants you? I said, I don't know. He said, why don't you think about working in treatment? I said, I am not working in treatment. It's I sponsor guys. I don't want to be around 40 other people that are just as nuts as I am. <laughs> so I am not working in treatment. I do not want nothing to do with treatment. I'm very fine. I'll figure something out. So for the next month and a half, I, I did a lot of applications. I took a lot of jobs, and I hated them all. And I happened to be speaking at a meeting where a friend of mine that worked at the ranch of Pennsylvania um, was in that meeting. And uh, she said, hey, we're hiring. And um, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And she goes, why don't you come over tomorrow and interview with the director? And so I called up my sponsor and I said, you ain't going to believe this, but <clears throat> there was a friend of mine in the meeting and they're actually hiring over at the ranch of Pennsylvania. He goes, yeah, I know. That's where you're going to work. I said, no. Nah. So I came over and I met with the director and we, we came up with a, a plan and I thought what I asked for would be too much. And she agreed and she said, when can you start? And I said, in a couple of weeks. And she said, how about Monday? And um, that was almost six years ago. And so tell you a little bit about what we do here. Um, the reason that I work at the Ranch of Pennsylvania is I believe in what we do. Um, we, we, we were probably doing mental health before COVID. We have therapists on board that work with trauma, psychodrama, those types of skills, CBD, DBT, those types of things. Um, we do a lot of adventure programs, which I think separates us from a lot of treatment centers around here. You know, we have a ropes program where we go down in the woods and they build up trust with clients. They do team building skills. Um, they'll do all kinds of skills inside if the weather's bad. Um, we do a lot of different things in that group. Um, our trauma-informed care, we take very serious here. Um, we separate our clients from substance abuse, from mental health and co-occurring. So whenever you're in your primary process group, you're in with either people who are mainly substance, people who are mental health, or maybe, you know, uh, people who are co-occurring. And a lot of your co-occurring clients don't recognize that they have an addiction problem because um, they don't want to be deemed an addict. But if you sit and talk to them for a while, like we do here, and the job that I do at the ranch um, is pretty much I, I run groups, I, run, I work on the floor. Um, I was given the opportunity to transport. And I like to transport clients because it gives me an opportunity to meet them before they get here. And most clients, before they get the treatment, are scared out of their mind. And um, for whatever reason, I've been given the ability to talk. <laughs> According to my wife, it's not very nice. But <laughs> I have the ability to talk because I remember, I remember the first man that was kind to me when I left treatment. He gave me a pack of juicy fruit. I was going to steal it. And, um, and he looked at me and he kind of looked like Charles Manson. He had tattoos all over him and piercings. And I was in this sober house and I was stealing his lunch meat. And um, 
He simply walked over to me and he said, you know, Mike, if you ask me for a pack of gum, I'll give it to you. And I said, sir, I don't know how to ask for help. I've never asked for help. He said, here, take it. And I said, you're going to give me your pack of juicy fruit? He said, yeah. And I know that seems very minute, maybe to a lot of people, but it's the first time I experienced love and kindness from another man, and it touched me. And I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that's what I wanted. And, um, and I continued to build on that. So getting back to kind of my job here. So when I do transports, sometimes they're, sometimes they're coming from treatment. Sometimes they're coming drunk. Sometimes they're just coming from a mental health psych ward. And um, I get to make their entry to the ranch of Pennsylvania a little easier. I get to explain our program to them. I get to answer their questions for them. I get to calm them down. And if needed, I'll sit with them while they admit. I'll talk to them about them. I'll take them through the building. I'll introduce them to the other clients. Um, and I think a lot of people make their decision whether they're going to stay in treatment within the first 48 hours and the first four or five people they meet. And I want to make sure that I'm one of the first four or five people they meet if I'm here and I can do it. I think it's very important that when clients admit to the ranch of Pennsylvania that they're treated like human beings and not numbers that they're not pushed to the side. And I believe we do a very good job of treating clients when they first get here the way I would want to be treated when I get here or a family member. I think that initial, especially if it's your first time in treatment, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. You have no idea. It's like your first day in a new school. Like you have no idea what you're in for and you have to see all these other people walking around. And most people will tell you horror stories about treatment centers if you've never been in one and they've probably never been in one neither and they scare the hell out of other people. And um, so I get to get a, a relationship with them. And, and one of my main duties here, and is, is myself and the techs and everybody that works in this organization is to build a relationship with them, but also keep a healthy boundary with them. And, and what I mean by that is you get to know them, share a little bit about who you are, but try to find out who they are and, and keep it more personal than personal. I mean, keep it more, you know, more open than personal, unless it's necessary for me to share some things that happened to me that might help them. And um, I have the opportunity to run groups with both uh, groups of substance abuse and mental health and co-occurring. And um, when we run our co-occurring groups, um, because 12 Steps sometimes can have a stigma on it, um, we call it resilient recovery. And it's basically um, groups that are run very similar to the first three steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about being powerless, we'll talk about accountability, we'll talk about taking risk, we'll talk about different things that um, are manageable in their lives, we'll talk about being selfish and self-centered and helping them recognize that their illness is revolved around being selfish and self-centered and trying to get away from the blame game and being a victim and understanding that their families right now, although they might be saying nice things to them and they might not be very happy with them, if you ever really want to know, just switch places with your family member and you'll understand, you know, because most of the time there's a lot of lying and stealing and manipulation that goes on and, and families get burned out. You know, I, I was sober for quite a while and my wife relapsed and um, it was probably the longest year and a half of my life. I put her into three treatment centers after she was sober for a long time and uh, I got to see the other side of the illness and it's not pretty. I got to see the lying and the manipulation and the stories and the money missing and, you know, um, and the only thing that kept us together was the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous and what I believed in God. And um, I wanted to walk away from it every day. And today she's sober 14 years and um, I've never loved her anymore. We've never been any closer, but my wife had a secret and she didn't give the secret up 
and it caused her to eventually relapse. And I, I believe that when you come into treatment, you have to deal with your secrets. You, ha you have to be able to trust people. I believe that's why the bond that you build with these clients, that they'll open up and tell you things they've never told other people before, because unless you do that, you can't get well. And our therapist here, we have six or seven different therapists. They all specialize in different things and they all do trauma-informed care, they all do psychodramas, they'll do all kinds of things with our clients. Um, I've sat in meetings with clients, when I, with uh, therapists and clients when I get here, and it's amazing to watch people transform in that room as a result of what we do here. Um, I'm proud to work at Durant, Pennsylvania. I'm proud of everything that we do at Durant, Pennsylvania. I think what separates us uh, even more from the adventure um, the last year we put on a gentleman, he, he specializes in mindfulness, meditation, and drumming and music. Um, back when I got sober, that wasn't possible, but I find it, especially people with mental health and substance, it's a calming thing for them. At first it's a little weird because the guy's up there ringing bells, and, but I watch the clients and they seem to enjoy it. And, um, I'm a firm believer in watching the clients. I spend a lot of time with them. Is um, we do it first thing in the morning after they eat, and it keeps them calm, and maybe gets them in touch with something spiritual in their life, if not spiritual, at least personal, and something that they can build on. And uh, Alan does a great job of connecting with the clients. He also runs groups, um, and he talks a lot about mindfulness, a lot about meditation, a lot about prayer. You know. I believe the spiritual path in, in addiction is your own. And I think you learn it from watching others. Um, I was not big on the spiritual process when I got sober, but I saw other people be happy and I saw them solve their problems without drinking and using drugs and I wanted to know how to do that. And uh, every time I walked up and seen one of them, they all told me the same thing. And I said, man, there's gotta be something to that because everybody I met happy has a couple things in common. They help others and they pray and they have a belief system and everybody's God's probably a little different and that's okay. As long as that you have something that brings you peace at night. You know, five years ago, I was diagnosed with stage three kidney cancer and I was told I wasn't gonna leave the hospital. And um, when you're 21 years sober and you're told that you have stage three kidney cancer and you may not make it, a lot of things flash through your mind and I can tell you the saving grace was the things that I learned all the years prior to that and the things that I went through. I think adversity, and I try to show clients by my example, that you go through adversity and that pain has purpose. And the pain that you're going through one day will help another human being. And um, my sponsor was by my side and my wife was by my side the whole time and I woke up and um, it's almost six years now and I'm cancer free. And I believe it's only because of um, doing the next right thing, being positive. I never once gave up. I never once thought I was going to die. I never once believed that to be true because I was taught to change my way I think about it. I never once thought about taking a drink. It wasn't an option. I never once thought about anything. I just said, but let's go do it. Um, I mean, whatever you have to do. I think that's much easier than knowing I, you know, for a guy like me, the, probably the hardest thing is knowing you can't drink, but you still do. I'd much rather go through cancer surgery than knowing that I can't drink and I still want to because it's, it's terrible. It's absolutely brutal to sit in your house in the morning and make a firm commitment not to take a drink and not lay in bed all day and not be depressed 
and make a conscious decision to get out of that bed, yet you can't do it, man. And all of a sudden, you find yourself downstairs because you don't know the nature of the illness, and you're drinking a beer, and the next thing you know, you're in a blackout, and you've done something stupid, and you've got to say you're sorry again. That's probably the hardest thing I've ever been through, but it's been the most rewarding thing for me because I understand it. And so here at the ranch, we focus a lot on being positive. When the clients come in, they start aftercare right away. We get them into aftercare. We get them into PHPs, IOPs, um, therapies, anything, because, you know, 28 days, it's not the magic kingdom. You're not going to, you know, you're going to get a little discovery in 28 days, but it's a journey. And so we, we start right away with the family aftercare. We do family sessions. We get the family involved. Um, even with everything going on with COVID, we've been able to find ways to get family sessions and help our clients. And I think that's probably a very powerful thing for our clients because you go to some places, and I've been around to a lot of treatment centers, and I do a lot of things at treatment centers, and um, I don't hear the same things I hear about our facility. So, And I'm not saying that because I work here. I'm just saying that because I believe in what we do. And, um, and we get the clients engaged in their aftercare, and we let them pick, and we let them choose up to a point with the help of a therapist and our caseworkers. And um, just a little bit about, um, we have a great family program afterwards. Um, uh, Sonia was going to speak a little bit on this tonight. Um, and, and basically on Fridays, we our uh, clinical director, um, they do a program on Fridays for families. They do it over Zoom. And they educate families on addiction, mental health, and the things to look for and the things that can be helpful and, and try not to... Um, sabotage the loved one's recoveries um, and we educate I think education is probably one of the most important thing to do with family members because a lot of family members including myself before I got sober I didn't understand addiction or mental health I mean I thought everybody woke up and wanted to die I just for me from the time I was 24 years old that was what I did and I had more money than I knew what to do with and I had friends and I drove Cadillacs and every morning I woke up and I just, I couldn't wait to get out of the, I just couldn't wait to get loaded. And, um, and as a result of that, I, I paid a severe price for that. And um, so I dedicate my life because people did it before me. And we have a great staff of techs here. We sit with our clients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're never alone. There's always a tech in the cottage with them. Like last night I was here, one of the gentlemen got up. He was having a very bad nightmare. I was able to go out, sit on the couch with him, talk with him for a little bit, calm him down, have a smoke a cigarette, and he went back to bed. And um, that's my paycheck. Like, you know, I get a paycheck and that's great, but my paycheck is, today that was my paycheck. And I get a lot of paychecks every day, and most of the people, if not all the people that work at our facility, that's their paycheck, is to change one person's life so they don't have to die from the disease of addiction. And um, Mandy will be speaking later, but we have a great alumni program, and we watch clients come back and rebuild their lives, and it'll make you cry. Um, so I'm very honored to be able to give them this ability to speak a little about, about the ranch. Um, I'm honored that I've been able to share a little bit of my life with you, and hopefully it helps some others out there that don't understand what's going on. Um, it goes a lot deeper than you think it goes, but there is a way out. There, there is a better way to live. Um, you just have to find it. And unfortunately, for me, you find God in sobriety on the way to hell. Um, and I think it's one of the best ways to find it is going through the pain. And every morning I wake up and I thank God I don't have to live the way I used to. 
and I'll end with this, you know, um, if you're grateful, if you're grateful every day of your life for the things you have and you're not worried about the things you don't have, you'll never have to take a drink again. And I believe it's a soul sickness. And if you heal your soul and you open up your heart and you allow the light to shine in and you allow people to love you and more importantly, you love the people back and you become of purpose because I believe we have a purpose and it's to be of maximum service. Maximum service to God and other people. Let them know by your example and the power that's vested in you by others that they too can recover and they can enjoy life and one day walk the worth a free man and a free woman. And if I can change one person's life while I'm here, then I consider that a win for me. So I wanna thank you for the opportunity. Um, the Ranch of Pennsylvania, if you ever need us, we're in the phone book, we're on the webpage. Just call us up and call our call center. Um, we have a great call center. They'll explain everything that we do here, just like I did. And um, if you ever need our help, we're 24 hours a day and um, willing and able to do whatever you need to take care of your loved one. So thanks for letting me share. Wow, that was a powerful story, Mike. Um, I'm speechless to that story. Uh, we promote gratitude, we promote meditation. We've had people talk to us about just appreciating life and I, I can't sit here and say I understand because I was never at that point um, in addiction. Um, I can understand the love part of it. Sometimes we all think, you know, we were never loved and that's hard to deal with. I just recently dealt with that uh, probably about a year ago when Austin made a statement to me and that's hard. It's really hard. And you're right, everybody has a different higher power, and I believe in that every day. I cry watching Undercover Boss. It's embarrassing. No, don't ever be. <laughs> <laughs> I cry more than my wife. But you know what? As my experience and our experience when we do these podcasts, it's okay. Mm. Um, we just did an interview with a, a boy that worked with me for four years, and he cried all the time at work. And I was like, you know what? It's okay for guys to cry. I know in our generation, men didn't cry. The younger generation, they're okay with it. But I tell everybody, you can cry in front of me. I'm probably going to cry too, you know. But that's letting the feeling out. Like, you have a very powerful story. Yeah. And I appreciate you sitting here and sharing all of that. And you're going to help somebody with the listener. You're helping people here. Mm. And as I said, when we came in, my goal and his goal is to help one person. Absolutely. And I think you're helping many people. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. I, uh, I often tell my guys, if you think you're a tough guy, get a puppy. And um, I have two black labs. They're a year old. And I remember when me and my wife got them, I was like, they don't sleep in bed. That's the rule. Well, if you're married, they sleep in bed. Um, <laughs> and um, like tonight when I go home, um, I, go, I, I fall asleep and bingo, he's my dog. And um, God just sentenced that dog to me. And... Um, before I fall asleep, he does, and his, he puts his uh, snoot right on my shoulder, and I can hear him breathing, and it just, you know, you just take so many time things for granted, and when I hear that dog breathe, it just warms my heart, man, and I never could feel that before, and um, I remember my wife went away for the first time, and I'm like, yes. I have the whole bed to myself. <laughs> I'll put the dogs in the living room, and I'll sleep all night, right? I'm like tossing and turning. I'm like, what the hell is wrong, right? <laughs> and I hear him out there, right, you know? And I'm like, damn, I got to let them dogs in the bed. <laughs> and man, them dogs come running up in the bed. I was asleep like in four minutes. So I'm like, son of a... 
<laughs> she's right, you know. I mean, but I can't tell her. She got back. She said, said where'd the dog sleep? And I said, <laughs> on the couch. She goes, you're lying. <laughs> I said, yes, I am. <laughs> Are I said, they service dogs or no? No, they're, okay. just, they're like rats on crack. They're labs. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're very intelligent, but yet very stupid. Um, and I love them to death. And you love them to death. I, and, um, I think it is about gratitude. I think it's about getting connected with your soul. I think it's about energy. And I think it's about trying to be an example to someone who doesn't quite understand what they go through to show them that what you've been through. And, um, that's really the nature of recovery, you know. Um, pain has purpose. You know, you get a toothache, you go to the dentist, you know. You get a heartbreak, you go to a psychiatrist. You get addiction, you come to treatment. And you learn from the experience of others, and it's an honor. And I'm very, very happy that the Rancho Pennsylvania keeps me here. And um, more importantly, um, the position that I'm in, the things that I do are very gratifying to me. So. Again, thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I just have a couple quick questions sure. just through your story. I didn't want to interrupt you, but so this is a rehab center? Yes. So when they come from treatment, is that like detox treatment or prison? Then they have to go somewhere, or what does that mean? Most of the time, so we have a couple detox centers in here. So the clients, um, if they need medically detox, so if they come in here, there's a certain level, blood alcohol level, or a certain level of um, uh, drugs in their system, we can't medically detox them. So they'll go to other facilities, okay. they'll detox, we'll go pick them up and we'll bring them in. Um, so we pick up a lot of people from mental health facilities. Okay. So maybe once they could leave, because like your psych ward is your highest level of care, mm -hmm. inpatient psych. Yep. So once they are stabilized in inpatient psych, they'll call us. Um, we work with Wellspan and many of the facilities around the area. We'll go pick them up and they, they don't need that high level of care any longer. Okay. And then we pick them up and we bring them here. Yeah. Okay. So th this is the only facility in New York County that does that for mental health? I think other facilities do some mental health. Um, as far as I know, we're the only one that does it at that level. Okay. At, at the level so that right we from do. there, right from the hospital transport yeah, we'll, right we'll, here. We'll take them straight from, we have Doc Rob and uh, Aaron as a psychiatrist and um, nursing. And so um, I think Doc's one of the best addictions guys I've ever seen in my life um, with the clients. As far as medications with Aaron, you know, part of, the, of this process is finding the right meds, um, you know, diagnosing, listening to the client, seeing what they've been on, maybe changing their meds, maybe up in their meds, maybe taking them off the meds. And, it, and it's hard because you only have a certain amount of time with them. And I think our nursing facility and, and Dr. Rob does a great job and Aaron of, of understanding what the client's needs are. And um, it's amazing to watch them after they meet with them and they maybe make an adjustment to their meds and you see them laughing or maybe smiling and you're like, I've never felt this good. And I'm like, yeah, I remember. I remember when they did that to me, you know, and it's mm -hmm. scary because yep. when you're making a medication change, you know, you're not quite sure, but you got to take a chance. So uh, I'm very proud of our uh, medical facility and how they work with our clients and, and the medication protocol. And it's a, you mentioned 28 days. Is that the max that somebody can stay here? 28? Not, not necessarily. Okay. Um, again, it's an insurance thing. You know, we have some clients that can self-pay. We have some clients, most of our clients are insurance. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I would say our average length of stay would be somewhere right around 28 days. Um, it's, it's hard. 
but it's, it's just enough to get them. And usually, like I said, once they start aftercare, so if they're not ready to go out into society yet, mm -hmm. they'll go to an IOP inpatient or outpatient facility. They'll do therapy. They'll do classes. They'll do groups. Some places are residential. You stay there, at the, and then you go back in the morning. We do a lot of um, working with other facilities okay. within probably 200 miles of here. Like, I do a lot of that wow. driving, and we'll take them to those facilities if needed. Or they'll come pick them up. We go to Baltimore. We'll go to Philly. Like, we'll take them wherever they need to go. So it's kind of like a ne the next stop for them. So and the insurance looks at that as separate care? Correct. Okay. And it's that way they can get more time. Okay. Because this level of care is much more expensive than your IOPs or your PHPs. So once the insurance company thinks that the client is somewhat stable and clinical thinks they're stable, they'll step them down. And they'll usually end up in an IOP. I ended up in the PHP. So um, what are they? What's an IOP? So IOT is intensive outpatient. Okay. So usually you go three days a week. Sometimes it's during the day, if, depending if you're working. Sometimes it's night. It's like three to four hours a day. You meet with a psychiatrist. There's usually a therapist there. They run groups. Um, they do individual counseling. It's kind of a continuum of what we do. Okay. Only they don't do it every day. Okay. Your PHP, um, partial. So they stay there. They sleep there. They eat there. They live there. They program all day long. Um, then they go back at lunchtime, they eat lunch, they go back to the facility, they program all night, and then they do their night groups, and then they sleep there. And they can usually get another at least three weeks or so at, a, at an inpatient facility like that. It's, it's not the same level of care that we provide. They're like this cell phone age and computers, so whenever mm -hmm. they transfer there, they have a lot more freedom. So they're they're given more freedom than we give them here because they're further along in the process. Mm -hmm. So, And if they were to relapse after leaving here and doing those programs, would insurance, I'm just trying to figure out the insurance part because this blows my mind that these are people's lives and we basically decide, insurance companies decide, would they be able to come back here again or is there so many visits per year? Well, that's a tough question, but since I've been here, we've taken many clients back, okay. but it is an insurance nightmare. Now we have a very good um, insurance department down there and mm -hmm. they fight, you know, with the clinical team, puts a lot of notes in for clients. They, you know, whether they're doing well, they're doing good, that's all reported to insurance companies, you know, but unfortunately insurance companies have their own doctors and when they make a decision, you know, we can appeal on the back end mm -hmm. and, and, and get them more time, but it's a risky, it's risky. I, I think it's terrible. Um, you know, yeah, I just, this, this world funds billions of dollars for a whole lot of things, and I think they're great causes, but we're not talking about saving money. You're talking about saving lives. And I've seen people that have been had to leave here due to insurance, and, and they weren't ready. And, but they've, we have been able to get them back, you know, um, but it's tough. But it's more expensive, in my opinion, and I'm not that knowledgeable. It's going to cost you more to let them go out and relapse and come back Absolutely. than to keep them here a couple more weeks until they're ready to go. Absolutely. And they might die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories that people can't get in. Mm. And they. I met a girl who said she almost died. She literally said one more time, like, I'm going to rehab tomorrow. So if the bed would have been available at that moment when she was ready... Mm -hmm. she would have went and she overdosed luckily she's still alive but oh she said just waiting mm -hmm. those couple days she thought you know what i'm just going to do it one more time because i know when i go there yeah. 
and she almost died. And her mom said to me, if that bed would have been available, she would have been there. And there were stories where they do die waiting oh, yeah. for that bed. The problem, like back when I got sober and clean, um, I was in three treatment facilities, three psych wards. Insurance wasn't a problem. Now, the last two facilities, obviously, I was homeless, so I, was, I came in under state mm-hmm. you know, medical assistance. But, um, you know, a lot of our clients may have been to three or four rehabs in one year, and the insurance companies will just say, well, you know, that you're done. And they don't quite get the nature. You know, you just don't know when a person's going to get it. And I don't believe in denying a person another chance. Um, so we do fight very hard for our clients. Um, we have a great organization that, that does a lot of documentation and, and referrals and talking to them and docs, talking to our docs, and we do the best we can. But unfortunately, people do creep through. And I just think it's the stigma of it's a choice. They deserve what they get. And if we can convince people that it's a disease like cancer, you're not going to put a cancer patient out of a hospital because their insurance is 30 days. And I, I personally believe how do we get these people to understand that this is a disease as well so that they look at it as a disease. We don't shun people that have cancer. We don't shun people that have other diseases, diabetes or whatever, who basically, and I'm diabetic, and I'm just saying like they don't always take care of themselves. They eat the wrong things. They're making wrong choices, but we continually help them. And we don't understand as a society what this disease is. One thing, if there's anything good about COVID, one thing it did was expose the mental health population and it did open up the eyes of people saying, you know what, mental health is not a choice. People with mental health and substance abuses do not make a conscious choice every day to do what they do. And professionals who were making six digits and had to sit at home all day long with their families find themselves start drinking in the morning or they find themselves in depression. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't go to the store, you can't go to the mall, you could go to Walmart or Starbucks, but uh, other than that, you weren't going anywhere. And I think you're probably from your experience, you'll see that COVID blew that population out of the mm-hmm. water. So uh, what I have seen in my own experience is a lot more leniency for the mental health population as COVID continues to go on because those people always had underlying issues and once you isolate and tell a person to stay home that doesn't want to go out anyway and tell them to stay in bed all day long and send them money it started to expose people that had never felt depression before so uh, some good came out of that Mm -hmm. you know um but it, it it's still not where it should be i don't know if it ever will be i don't know i mean everybody wants to advocate for it but Everybody's so opinionated on it. It just blows my mind. And it can touch anybody. Those people that listen, we preach this all the time. People that say it's not going to happen to me, those are the people that scare me. Mm-hmm. Because it will. Because it will. Mm-hmm. And you'll be sitting here. Is. Yeah. And we'll, <laughs> you're sitting next to me, and you don't even know what you could know that could save your family member. And I, as I shared when we walked in, I wouldn't know now. If I would have been educated, and it wasn't that I was like, my kids are too good for this because I don't believe that I had that attitude. I just was ignorant. Right. I just didn't even know. Like, when they came upstairs and said he had a needle in his arm, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know what that means. Right. Like, yeah. so education is key. And the judgmental um, people, like, it could hit you. And then all of a sudden it's, wow, I should have listened. Yeah, it's it's... Unfortunately, and I know just my own experience, I could hide it for a long time. 
but once you can't hide it no more, it's really ugly. Like you go from like being normal, like being able to fool people, and then like in a very short time, depending on how far along you are, it's everybody knows. Like everybody knew before, but they didn't want to talk about it. But now everybody knows, yeah. right? Because nobody wants to talk about the white elephant, right? Like everybody yep. in my family drinks. Now, not necessarily the way that I did, but I have a lot of family members that are alcoholics. They judged me. Mm-hmm. And so I had to make a decision when I got sober who I was going to put back in my life and who I wasn't. And a lot of my family still drinks. Um, it's funny, and I'll, I'll tell you this real quick, but um, my father uh, is dying of pancreatic cancer. And uh, a year ago, he called me from a VA hospital. And this is the man that beat me and beat my mom and the reason I took my first drink. And um, he chose another family over our family and I never have gotten over that. And um, he called me up one day and I saw the area code so I knew it was Pittsburgh. And he said, uh, Michael, this is your father. And I said, my father's dead to me. And he said, no, it's, I'm your father. And I said, well, if you're my dad, you'll know the name of my favorite dog and where it's buried because the only other person that knows that's dead. And he said, your favorite dog is Wolf, it's buried under the swing set. And I said, son of a bitch, it's you. And he said, I know you don't have any reason and I blame you if you never want to come see me, but I need to talk to you before I die and I don't have much longer to live. And I said, I got to tell you, sir, I, I have no interest in seeing you. And, um, but I'll, I'll think about it. So I got off the phone and I, I called my sponsor and some other men and uh, they said, so you're gonna deny your father the same thing your daughter denies you. I said, well, I didn't abuse my daughter. And they said, oh, really? Were you ever really there for your daughter, Michael? And I had to think about that. So I called him back and I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And I walked into a room and um, he was in a wheelchair. He weighed about a hundred pounds. And he stood up, first time he got up on his feet, according to the nurse in months. And we hugged each other and I told him I loved him. And that's only because of the power of the program at AA and working steps and helping others. And I was able to forgive him. And I think, I, I think it was more powerful for me than him. Mm-hmm. You know, and now he's still, he's still living. Um, but when he passes, I'll have peace. And I've been able to give him something that he always wanted. And he explained to me why he did the things he did. And, um, it was a very powerful reunion. Um, I cried, and um, he cried, and uh, I call my dad twice a week now. That's awesome. So, you never know. Life is tricky. It sure I, is. He was the one I thought would never come back into my life, and um, one phone call. That's what people don't realize. One phone call changed your whole life. One car ride. You one car ride, you get hit by a truck. Who knew it? You know. That's true. That's very true. You don't know when you're saying goodbye for the last time. Anybody walks anywhere. 100% true. And I, I'm, I'm just going to pray for you that I'm going to pray for your daughter um, because that's tough. Like, that's tough. Yeah. And um, maybe one day when I'm in a nursing home, <laughs> she might come visit. But the neat thing about being sober is you start to understand um, – Although she's my daughter, I kind of live vicariously through the young people in AA and the young people that come through our facility, and I kind of semi-adopt them and, and try to share with them the love and concerns with them, and um, that's very rewarding for me. And I've been blessed. Uh, on Father's Day, I get about 45 Father's Day cards 
from all the young men and women in AA and some ex-clients that remember me telling them that and they'll send me cards. So although they're not my real family and I would love to have my real daughter back, uh, I've been overpaid by the love and kindness of clients that came here and people I've met along the way. So. And I can tell you, I went to AA meetings and he went to one with us. We went over in Lancaster and the feeling that you get there is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I, I can't ever get my son back, but when I'm with those people, with, with that group of people, I feel like he's sitting in the room with me to the point where the first time I ever walked in there, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to say. The friend that I was with, I didn't really know him that well. And I didn't know what, and, he, and he's like, they're gonna, you're going to have to say your name. I'm like, what am I saying? <laughs> like, I don't even know what to say. And they probably don't even want me here because I'm not an alcoholic. And I felt unwanted until they made me feel wanted and talked to me every time I went there. But my first time there, I didn't really know him that well. My son was sitting at a table. Like, mm -hmm. I Absolutely. saw him sitting at a table, and I just cried, and I'm like, I belong here. And even though I don't have an, an addiction, like these people made me feel like family. Like I loved every one of them. We went back to a bonfire. Yeah. And and I just went every week as much, as many times as I could go because that was me getting to spend time and understanding the mental health part of it. Like mm -hmm. what went wrong? Like you blame yourself mm -hmm. and as a parent, but then like what went wrong and you hear their stories and one girl stood up and she said we go to funerals every week and we watch our friends mm. die and I'd watch the moms like they're torn apart and I just want to know what they feel like and that was my perfect opportunity at the end mm -hmm. to stand up and say if you want to talk to me I'll tell you what this feels like and they were so grateful for me and I was grateful for them because right. they appreciated Right. You know, that I was there and I appreciate that they were willing to let me talk at a meeting. So that is the closest community I've ever been in. It's amazing that there's a saying, love the unlovable. And um, that's what we do. We love the unlovable. And um, we love, like people did for me, they loved me back to health. And um, I can never repay the debt that they would give me. I mean, if I had to come to work and they told me they couldn't pay me for a month, I'd still come to work. And I remember a man telling me one time, go find a job that you would do if they told you they couldn't pay you and see if you'd still show up and then you'll know where you're supposed to be. And um, this is that job. I would still come. Um, I might have to get a side job, but I would still come. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and people do that. Yeah. Like this is, this job, health field do not get paid enough. Like, no. I know that they really don't, and, and they are creating people and saving people's lives more than anybody realizes. And even through COVID, you realize, like, all the nurses and all that, <sighs> everything that people put into it, work in tremendous hours. And, and I respect everybody that does this job where they could be out making more money, but people like you are the reason that we have these. I just got an email from an ex-client two years ago. She was a nurse. She lost her license because of drinking, she got her license back and she's opened up her own um, LPN nursing license and she's in the middle of Florida in the COVID, in the worst COVID hospital. And she sends me pictures of her all the time with all the gear and stuff on. Mm -hmm. And it's just so rewarding to watch her because when she came in here, she, like most people, was just angry. And uh, to watch her, she, she shows me little videos of her working in the COVID wing. And uh, when she came in here, she didn't want to live. 
and watch her to open her nursing place, get her nursing license back, and volunteer to go work in the COVID hot zone seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It's amazing. So it surely is. There are miracles. There sure is. You're one of them. Austin, do you have any questions? Your, your story is an inspiration, man. I, I appreciate you. you taking your time out and telling us your story and, and what you do here. It's, it's, it's an honor to listen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It sure is. Definitely so, a life-changing story right there. Yep. Perseverance. You. Yep. You pers- Perseverance. Yep. Is there, uh, you said your website, is it just the ranch? Yeah, well, actually, it's called Promises now. Okay. Uh, Promises. Um, so if you go under Promises, you'll, you'll, we have, I don't, I don't want to say something I know, but we have quite a, we have facilities up and down the East Coast, the West Coast. Okay. We have Ranch of Tennessee. We have a place in um, Maine, Boston. Um, we have a place in Florida. There's, if you just go on our webpage, thepromises.com, you'll see it. Okay. And it, we post a lot of stuff on Facebook. Okay. Yep. So for those listeners, if you struggle to find it, reach out to us on our group page or Facebook page, and I'll get in touch with Mike um, or someone that can reach out and give you the information if you can't find it on your own. So thanks again, Mike. We appreciate it. And um, the listeners, we'll catch you on the next one. All right, guys. See ya. Thank you.